right. Well, welcome back to Kids These Days. I'm your host, Dr. Beth Trammell, and I am so excited about today. I And I know I say that every time. I, I think I say this every time, but it's the truth every time. But y'all are going to love who I have on today uh, because the depth of experience and the depth of knowledge of my new friend, Morgan, is just unbelievable to me. So uh, before I go too much further, uh, Morgan, can you just introduce yourself and then share one fun fact for our listeners? That's what all the folks do when they come on. Oh, yeah, cool. So I'm Morgan. <laughs> and um, you, can, you can probably, you might be able to tell from my, um, my accent, like we tell, we call it a brogue down here. Right. But I am from a brogue, you know? So I am from South Carolina and um, I kind of am like three things. Like I'm a family man or a family person, I guess I should say. Like I really love my family and there are only, you know, two two other ones in my immediate family. And I'm a school guy because that's what I've done, a public school guy for a long time. And I am a a person of faith and um, that has been important to me. My spiritual life has also been important in the way it informs me otherwise. As far as a fun fact, like I think like there are there are a few. So choosing one. But one of the things that has happened to me um, is I have a child who has gone off to college and people have asked my wife and I like, what is it like to be empty nesters? You know, how's the empty nest going? And like that, that is really just I don't know. There's something about that question that's really dr- started to drive me kind of nuts. Like, <laughs> my, our nest is not empty. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, somebody said the other day, we'll call it re-nesting. And I thought, oh, that's good. So we call it, we're calling it re-nesting. But kind of the, one of the fun facts is that my wife and I are both graduates of the University of South Carolina. Go Gamecocks. Yes. And, and my child, several years ago, we were watching the Carolina Clemson game. Now we call our Carolina, South Carolina, we call it Carolina. And Carolina and Clemson are, are historic rivals. Um, they have been rivals for, for, you know, hundreds of years now. And we were watching the Carolina Clemson game. And I said, Chap, my, my son's name is Chapman. I said, Chapman, have you ever thought about going to Clemson? And he said, oh, no, I wouldn't want to, you know, embarrass my family. And I was like, oh, no, you know, it's, it's a good school and it's in-state uh, tuition. too. Uh, but to, to make a long story short, he, um, or to make a short story long, maybe that's what I'm doing. Anyway, guess where he ended up? No, he ended he up didn't. at Clemson University. He's a freshman. And we and last weekend we had to go to you know the, the obligatory family parent weekend at Clemson, and we tailgated and we went to the football game and it was just it's been really interesting thinking about all of the like cultural stuff that we've been programmed with this rivalry to like hate these people because they wear orange and they're tigers and it's just real and and. It's been really hard. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I already love this episode because I'm already learning so many things that, oh my gosh. Yeah. So, so now you have to, you have to buy orange. I mean, you have to. Yeah. Well, yeah, we, yeah. Yeah. And it's been hard. Like they gave me a little (laughs) sticker to go on the back of my car. It says Clemson dad. And I was like, Oh my God, I can't like, I'm not, I'm not sure I can like, so what I ended up doing was I recognized that I needed to put on the sticker because it was 
you know, given to me. But I bought a University of South Carolina alumni sticker to put above it so that so that I could at least show that you're like I'm <laughs> both all the orange. You're both. This is so interesting though, too, because it it's is weird. you're sort of saying it's like shifting your identity in some ways, you know? It it's is. like <laughs> my identity it has is. been with Carolina. Yeah. I mean, that is so and we, fascinating. And we have friends who are really mad at us. I mean, we, we have one friend who, uh, who I love, I love her to death, but like, she just, she's, she was like, I cannot believe y'all are letting him go to that place. And it's just been like, she won't let us wear orange in the house. And I mean, it's just that kind of, anyway, I guess part of it is because we're making that identity shift all of a sudden, I'm like, what have we been doing all these years? Because like people, people who are Carolina people like us will like say things to my son that are just kind of like really kind of evil. <laughs> and I was like, I was one of those people a year ago. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know what though? This actually ties into to really everything that we have kind of learned together. And yeah. honestly, it's what I spend a lot of time talking with parents and I'm sure you do too that we don't even realize some of the kind of underlying messages that we send to our kids and the people around us. Yes. Until it's sort of like right there in your face, you know? Yes. Oh my gosh. That's so powerful. And, you know, I love just sort of everyday examples of how these things play out. Right. I mean, we spend so much time as parents trying not to mess up our kids. Yes. You know, it's like, oh gosh, I've got to look up the best parenting book and I've got to do this sticker chart just the right way. And my kid needs to be at this level, (laughs) at this stage, at this time. And we spend all this time fretting about it, you know? And then it's really like some of these just everyday moments are our best learning tools to grow as parents anyway. Yeah. And you know, I don't know when it was, but when he was, maybe, maybe it was probably going maybe from elementary school to middle school, because that's a hard transition for oh, yeah. a lot of parents. Because um, like, for example, like we put him on the bus, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and in fifth grade, he was really excited to learn that he was going to ride the bus next year. Um, and then by April, he had started hearing some things about the bus, mm. you know? And I was, I was like, Chapman, here's my advice. Just sit near the front and just hold on and, you know, get home. I think I learned at that point in time that really my, for me, my responsibility as, as a parent was to help him become an independent adult. Yeah. And that was kind of like a freeing kind of, I was like, oh, wow, this is like my job now is to help him become independent. And in order to do that, I'm going to have to work on myself a little bit and let some stuff go. <laughs> you know? um, and, and then Lena and I, um, my wife, Lena, I, I guess just like every parent, I suppose, but like, you know, we've had to struggle through, for lack of a better term, our different parenting styles. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? oh, and yeah. so we have to talk, you know, because um, our marriage comes first, and, but we have to talk a little bit, you know, even today yeah. about, okay, well, maybe you don't use that tone with it. Maybe we... <laughs> It's but anyway, so I, don't, I don't know where we're going. <laughs> yeah, it's so true, though. I mean, yeah. so much of, you know, being kind of a unified front is in communication. And sometimes that's not 
that's not the easiest conversation to have, right? Because mm-hmm. I am deeply rooted in how I think we should raise our kids. Yeah. And and my spouse is deeply rooted in how he thinks we should raise our kids. And they don't yeah. always match. No, and no, not for at all. parents out there that also have trouble with conflict, right? Yeah. Which is a huge portion of folks, they're afraid of conflict. It's like, I don't know how to communicate. I don't know how to bring that up. And I don't know how to have a conversation so that we can come together. And, you know, I think to your point about just helping them become independent, one of the things I say over and over is that it's not our job to protect our kids from everything. Yes. In fact, that's actually not helpful for them, trying to protect them from this situation with a friend or protect them from feeling bad about this or that or this. Protecting them from everything is not the way to, to do this well. It really is teaching them being there alongside them as they're figuring out how to navigate the world, not necessarily trying to avoid all of the obstacles in front of them. Yeah. And I think, I think like uh, in my experience with like school people, and I say school people, but like I do a lot of work in, yeah. in schools. And, and so like one of the things that I make a point about is like my child is like, I have taught him how to play the school game is what I call it. Right. So I tell teacher like when he walks into your classroom, he knows how to shake your hand. And down here we say yes, sir. And no, ma'am. And all that. So he knows how to do all that stuff. And, you know, he'll tell you look nice today. And he's, you know, I, I say he's just a nice kid. And so he'll at least get a C in every class. Right. Because but I've taught him like I've taught him those skills and how to do that. And we have so many other students who's who just don't, have not had the opportunity to get that kind of, for lack of a better term, I guess, like getting kind of like a head start in in just social skills and how you fool people and then, you know, how you. But also, like I found in him going to college, you know, one of the things that I had to we had to have a conversation about when he was worried about his schedule because I was like, Chami, you. You talk to your advisor, you do all that. I'm not doing any of that. If you need my help, just let me know. I'll pay the tuition. Um, But but other than that, and and also I begin to try to help him understand how to kind of navigate the the college institution, uh, if you will. And so I think, I think, I think that's important. You know, I think it's important. I've taught him those things. And I think we have a lot of young people who haven't had that opportunity. And it just kind of give, gives mine kind of an advantage to some extent that makes, you know, almost makes it inequitable um, in so many different ways. So I don't know. I don't know whether I'm right or not, but. <laughs> I think, I think you're right on track to exactly where I was, was hoping we would maybe go next, which, you know, so Morgan and I met at a virtual restorative practices, train the trainer. Uh, training. So we spent all week together on Zoom and in breakout sessions. And, you know, as we sort of got to know each other a little bit there, we realized that we were sort of kindred spirits in a lot of ways. But, you know, the thing that continues to strike me is your, your approach and how it's so deeply rooted in your wealth of experience. So you have done so much work in the schools and so much work helping folks in the community. So give us just a little background on how you kind of came to this place and then now where you really see your focus in, in helping our kids, maybe through the schools or teachers or, or however you see that. But just give us all of that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow. Um, no, because right. well, I don't want to bore people either. But, but I think like one of the things that I found moving from 
being, I was a high school teacher and then I became a high school principal and, and moving into that role, I recognized for me, like so many of us, at least I did, I was called to teach. Like I I had a strong call. It was my call Um, um, for me, the numinous, you know, my, 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 my God said to me, right. Gave me permission to go out and teach. And, and that was, it changed my life. And so I went to, and I got trained, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, in, in college to teach young people. Yeah. Uh, to teach adolescents. Yeah. And then I moved into this position, which is a, in kind of school leadership, where really your role shifts to work with the adults in the building. So mm-hmm. I, I learned, well, if I help teachers to grow and learn and get them better every day, you know, help them to be better every day, then they're going to in turn help the students. So, it, so it's not so much I'm student centered anymore, even though I kind of am, but I'm helping the adults in the building. And that's, a, and that's a real that's a real switch. Like that's a, it's real a much change. different focus, right? Yeah. 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 Because they're, they're hard. Yes. <laughs> the old people are hard. Yes. And, and I would say this to you know anybody. And, and I found also that so many of them, you know, I, I think deserve and might benefit from building the adult community within the school. Because I always make the point to them too is that okay, students, young people pick up on adult behavior you know, in school. <laughs> and we don't ever have time or make the time in schools to like just get to know each other, like mm. just tell each other stories mm. about where we come from and who we are. And so a lot of the work that I've been doing with schools lately is to kind of around um, I call it courage work, but around this work of how do we how do we begin to even like then maybe even confront some of our own biases mm. and some of the stuff that's in us by sharing stories with one another as adults. So sitting in small circles and talking about, you know, culture and where we come from and, you know, what our parents were like and how we were reared and how that's affecting us in the way we, which we approach um, the parents of our students, our students, the community and that sort of thing. So, and it's very countercultural to, to some extent, you know, when you, build in some of these processes within this, within, you know, the adult community, because they're not used to having time of silence. They're not used to having, you know, being present with one another and that sort of thing. And I think that's exactly what so many need. I'm going to shut up now, but because school deforms us um, and, and the institutions that we work in, I think, and, and those are not just schools, you know, I, I don't, I always say it institutionalizes us. Um yeah. Because in schools, we're the only people who go to lunch at 11.28. You know, we have, <laughs> we have these really weird times. But um, Oh, my gosh. I'm helping, the, helping the adults in the building learn particularly how to work with parents and, and students based on every student's history, identity, and culture um, is, is, is a big part of the work that I do now um, with folks, or I try to. The reason that I'm sure people really appreciate you is because you've been boots on the ground, right? Like you've been in the classroom, you spent your time in the classroom, you spent your time as an administrator, and now you're like, hey, I'm kind of like big picturing for you and trying to help pull out some tools that will help overall culture in a lot of ways. And, you know, I also work in a lot of schools and I do a lot of consultation and, you know, over and over and over, 
I always hear this disconnect between what administrators think they're doing by supporting people, right? We're, we're bringing lunch on Fridays or we're having coffee and donuts or we're, you know, we're giving people more trainings to do because they're saying they need help. I know, right? Aren't we just sort of laughing out loud about that? And so I think the, the thing that continues to be this disconnect over the last couple of years, particularly with COVID, it's like, Teachers continue to feel undersupported and administrators continue to feel like they are doing as much as they can and just don't know how to meet. And so what I have come to the conclusion, I sort of had this moment where it's like, actually, the best way to support people is to get to know them well enough to follow up about things that are going on in their lives. Yes. So it's like, I feel most supported. I think most people feel most supported when I say something like, Hey, you know, how was last weekend at the concert? Cause I know you were at the concert. Hey, how's your dad doing? I know that he was, you know, sick last week. Like those are the things that matter to feeling supported. So here's my question for you, because this is sort of the constant roadblock that I know we both probably face over and over, right? Getting people to feel like, okay, here we go. Getting people to feel like they have the time, the energy, the space to do this. I mean, it's just such a hurdle, right? Like you and I know that getting to know people on a different level, on a, on a deeper level improves everything. And yet I mean, I know this, I feel this too. I, I hear this from teachers. I hear this from parents, from staff that it's like, I don't have time. I don't have the energy to, to, to meet new people, to make more friends, to get to know people that I just am not sure I'm going to like anyway. Like, how do you talk with folks about that? Um, particularly in the school building or, or, or maybe not. Well, yeah, I think it's really interesting to think about the fact that we're not just talking about schools. And we're talking about employee-employer relationships. We're talking about whether Absolutely. it's industry or, or government or or church or synagogue or temple or anything else. I think I think you're you're exactly right. And and I think that one of one of my educational heroes is Parker Palmer. He has done a lot of work uh, around this whole kind of like how do we address the inner life of teachers? Um, and and he's a Quaker. And by faith and, and uses a lot of that kind of, and I think it's cool because he talks about like, have we all have within us an inner teacher, uh, an inner God, an inner light, you know, some people may call it soul and that sort of thing, or, or our being, our character, who we are. But I think that like, we, we, we rarely give people an opportunity in, I even think it's really weird because like, I go to church, I go to church because I need church. Um, but, but you know, even in that place, which is supposed to be kind of, you know, spiritual and, 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 and mystical in so many different ways, I think we don't do like, you know, we want to have a Bible study and figure out what the words, you know, and I think that giving people space and opportunity and even, even without sounding too arrogant, but even trying to like, you teach people, you can find silence mm. in chaos. You know, you can, you can be mindful in a lot of ways other than you know, practice and meditation. I, I worked with, for 11 years, I ran the South Carolina Principal Induction Program. So all the first year principals in the state had to come to, um, through through this program. And I had time with them in the summer before they started their schools. And, and time and time again, like I always start off with silence. I always, you know, have them have some silence in community. And then we talk a little bit about 
you know, where you find silence in your life and, and where it's comfortable and uncomfortable. And so many of them, like they start off saying, like, I think this stuff is weird. Like, this is weird. Like, what is this guy doing? Like, we're at, we're at the State Department of Education. I'm supposed to be learning how to be an instructional leader. And we're sitting in silence. And then, like, by the end of the time, by the end of the year, they'll be like, I couldn't wait to get back just to have some silence, you know, just to, just to have time. I think it helps innovation and creativity, too. I think it can help productivity in a lot of different ways in a lot of different places, just to take some time around helping people build their inner selves. And I know, you know, I'm preaching to the choir, but I think we can do it. Well, I mean, I have done lots of trainings and I've never started with silence. Yeah. So this thing is, this idea here is really monumentous because, you know, for me as a therapist, right, we use therapeutic silence all the time. There's a reason it's called therapeutic silence. And what I love is that you're essentially taking that And you're using it for me in multiple ways, right? It's like you're encouraging people to find the space because you and I know, and frankly, I think a lot of these people who probably have come know they need to find the stillness. They need to find the silence. And yet we're just totally filled with so much stimulation everywhere, your phone, your TV, your, your kids, your spouse, everything around you is continually stimulating your senses. And so I love that you're really modeling and saying, Hey, this is what you've got to get to, but then also really encouraging this sense of community in a different way. Yes. I mean, it's just, I can imagine that people like having such a hard time with that, but then also, yeah, needing to walk away and be like, I need some more of that. Yeah. um, I think I've been, I've I've transitioned away from the state department long enough to be able to say this, but I also, I love this idea in um, some of y'all remember the book, um, don't sweat the small stuff. Oh yeah. Um, But, but like within it, he talked about having what he called white space. Mm. And, And this was the idea of you should take, like maybe take time in your calendar sometime during the week, you know, Wednesday at three o'clock, I'm going to have an appointment with myself, yep. put it in the calendar, tell your secretary, or whoever's helping you with your count, cal- you know, there's nothing, unless there's an emergency, it's not going to interfere. I'm going to be away for an, an hour. I'm going to go sit up under a tree. You don't have to tell them that, but sit up under a tree, have popcorn. And, and so I decided I wanted to, to kind of help principals who, who are under the gun all the time, mm. kind of begin to think about that concept. So so what I realized I needed to do was help them to practice it. Oh, yeah. So what we would do, I usually saw them two days, you know, every few months, two days back to back. We, we would get together and I said, okay, the second day, what I want you to do is I want you to practice white space. I want you to step up. I want, but you, I want you to take the whole day. Just take the whole day and practice it. It's a part of this program. You can tell, you know, you don't have to tell anybody anything. Pretend like you're coming to Columbia where I am to, you know. And there were some that just couldn't, they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. One went to work when the, when the five others didn't and they all got in trouble. You know, I was like, but now I have like, there's one that I saw the uh, principal that I saw the other day that went through eight years ago. And she said, Morgan, I cannot tell you how much white space has meant to me. She said, I'm going to tell you sometime about how it kept me out of jail. Um, mm-hmm. so I don't know about that part, but I just think like, it's also given people the opportunity to practice. So it's not just, you know, we're going to share our stories today with one another and then, and then you know, have 
so much. Uh, it is maybe building that into every single time we have a faculty meeting or every single time we have a department meeting or, you know, how do we, how do we, how do we approach that or do that? And I think you do that everywhere in organizations and in, it is countercultural in so many different ways, but it's also a political act when we do that in community with, um, with each other. And it's creating a culture yes. that values this, right? I'm, I'm already picturing you know, some, some folks who are like, can we just skip over the 10 minutes of silence and just get it done so I can get back to my classroom, you know? And it's like really saying, no, the culture here is that this white space is as valuable and it will make you more productive. Yes. And here we're going to do that. And you're going to eventually like it, hopefully. Gosh, it's so hard. Okay. So earlier you were talking about bias and you and I are also sort of kindred spirits here. You know, the psychologist in me just knows that, you know, decades and decades of research on, on bias and how this is just how our brain works, right? Our brain is always working on cognitive shortcuts because there's so much going on in the world that, you know, we all have bias. So I would love to hear from you, you know, kind of ways that you're helping folks become aware of those biases and, and maybe even a little bit about how you talk about bias. Um, so my listeners can hear it from another person. You know, I think a lot of times we say, well, we're, we're going to work on bias and, you know, everybody's like, oh my God, you know, or we're going to take a test online. Mm. You know, I, I just, I'm not, I'm not, maybe those things work. I don't, I don't, I haven't experienced that. Um, or we'll have like schools and faith communities and people, you know, let's go do a book study. And they don't, those things don't work. I mean, they just don't work for a lot of different reasons. Like, for example, um, we'll talk about attitudes towards time, right? Like, how do you look at time? It's really amazing to have these, how people tell stories around, you know, what do they feel when somebody is late to an appointment with them? And then, and then we get into these discussions around something like that, that is just, it brings out this stuff in them. I can't stand it. I will never. And, and, and then others are like, well, you know, I don't know. I just kind of get there when I get there and, you know, but my doctor makes me wait, you know, cause somebody say it's not professional, but all these things that come. And even in, in South Carolina um, and, and I suppose other places too, this whole concept comes up sometimes of um, CPT, colored people time or black people time that we, that we talk, that we begin, it's one of those things like nobody wants to talk about. This is a stereotypical thing that's historic in so many different ways. And that white people, and I'm a white guy, white people can't talk about it, but it is a stereotype that's attached to, to, to some history. And it's exactly what we need to talk about. Like we need to, we need to be able to work with each other and say, why do y'all do this? You know, why do you, you know, um, I get to explain my story. My wife's African-American. Um, we have a child that's a combination of both of us. And, and what I get to express to people that I think is important is that, you know, I love my wife. I love her family. I have been in situations with her where I've seen some things ha- occur. I listen to her stories all the time. And I also know that as much as I love her and I love my child, I will never, ever, ever really know what it's like to walk into the world as not only an African-American, but an African-American female. 
it's not that I, you know, I'm married to an African-American, so I'm not racist. No, I have those. <laughs> this, there's some stuff in me that like I use the example from um, Malcolm Gladwell and his book Blink, you know, where he talks about he that, you know, he grew his hair out and kind of looked different because he's a multiracial person. And people started treating him a little bit differently and how this this intuitive thinking or thinking without thinking is stuff that we can't help. Like it's, so it was also kind of freeing for me to know that when that guy got on the elevator with me the other day and my body kind of flinched that I couldn't help that. That was a flight, fear, flee, freeze moment. And what I've learned to do is like catch myself. So like I noticed that I flinched and then later in my mind, I started thinking, why like what was it about him that made you do that was it was because he was young was it because he was african-american was it because he had you know jewelry uh, what, what, what was it and so i think i think sometimes helping people to know some of this stuff is just in us and you can't help it there's no reason to i mean i'm not i don't feel guilty about it but i'll i'm learning ways to catch myself and then do some things about it. Why turn into wonder? Like, why is it that she said it that way? Why is it what's coming up in me when they said this that's making me angry? And do I really need to be angry? Is it ego? Is it, you know, what is it? So um, I think freeing people up and giving them permission to know that it's okay. It's not, bias is not. It's not a bad thing necessarily. But being aware of it and 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 knowing that it comes from some cultural stuff that we're 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 taught and historic stuff that that we're taught um, is is okay. It's what we do about it that makes a difference. I couldn't agree more with how you're describing that. Right? It's over and over. I tell folks like the bias by itself isn't what we need to be afraid of because if we're afraid of it, uh, we will pretend like it's not there, and that's yes. the opposite of what we want, right? The, the opposite of what we want is for everyone to say things like, well, I don't see color. I treat everyone equally. And all of those things are just literally not even possibly true because yeah. we don't treat everyone the same. No, I don't treat anyone the same. I don't right. treat all four of my kids. I treat them all differently. And yeah. I should because they're all four different. It it sort of makes me a little bit crazy, <laughs> you know? And I it's like, okay, that... I think people think, well, if I say these things, people will know that I don't have bias and that I'm not a racist. And just like you, I have spent the last probably really pretty deeply, maybe five years of my life reading and studying and becoming and I have spent countless hours. I mean, I, I talk about a summer that I had a, a few years ago where I felt really deeply called to really dig into doing more diversity inclusion work and diversity inclusion trainings around uh, this area. And I spent the whole summer, I think I gained 15 pounds. I was angry. It was heavy. And I am a white person. And I right. just started to carry this load that so many people have carried their whole lives. And so I think like you, it's realizing those moments that I still have, just like you're saying, like I live and breathe this stuff all the time. And I really try to be intentional over and over. And yet I was raised in a certain part of the country and I had experiences in certain ways growing up that have shaped me. 
into having those reactions that I just have to become aware of and then shift and say, that's not who I am anymore. That can be really hard. And to talk about it can be really hard. When my child walks into your classroom, you know, when he was in third grade or something, he walks into your classroom. In your mind, you're going to say something like this. There's something in him. Like, I can't quite figure, like, I don't know whether he's Palestinian or Obama-ish or he's just, there's something in him. And what I want to say to them as, as his parent, I want you to notice, like, I, it's natural for you to think yes. that. And I want you to find out about him. And is it his mama? Is it his daddy? Like, who's who? And what's what? And then and then teach him and and help him in, in a lot of different ways based on where he comes from and, and who he is. Because he's not like all your other students. And none of the students are, but I think that's true. I want him, I would love for that to happen with him in college and in, you know, in the grocery store. And, and I mean, you know, fair is not equal and equal is not fair. It's not, you know, it's, it's not about treating people equally. It's about treating them fairly and equitably. And I think that when we begin to think about that and think about this stuff, that this stuff is going to come up in us. I, I just call it my stuff, right? Yeah. It's my baggage it's okay. It's, 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 we all have it. It's okay. Um, and adjust, as you said, adjust, right? I, I call it catching myself. One of the things that you have talked about, I know it's one of your passions is to help adults really get to know their, their students, right? Yes. Like, cause once you get to know them and you see them as a person and not just as a behavior or as a, you know, certain type of student or whatever, like when you get to know them individually, everything gets better, right? Our level, our level of tolerance, our connection, their compliance, their uh, academic uh, achievement. I mean, everything gets better. So how do you help teachers do that? Do you have like one of your go-to almost like your silence strategy, right? But do you have another thing that you talk with, with teachers or parents or adults about to, to really do that well? I, I found, I found out as, as a teacher and, 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 and I had a, I had a wonderful experience because I was a school administrator. I was a principal for 12 years and I decided in those 12 years, I missed teaching. So I just decided to go back and teach, you know, which people don't do. That's, that's, you don't, you know, somebody will think something's wrong with you, but I went back and taught eighth grade social studies, you know, and it was just the best thing I ever did because I, I got to go back into the classroom and practice some of these things that I had been saying as a principal work and, and, and they did. And so much of it has to do with exactly what, what you have said. And I think sometimes it's sharing our stories mm. with other people that really make a difference is that I learned that students, that the young people I was teaching, those eighth graders, they would do anything for me if they liked me. You know, and we and we have and we still have teachers like walking around today and probably in other walks of life, too. But like, I don't care whether they like me. I don't, I'm not here for them to like me. They don't have to like me. I've got mine. They got to get theirs. You know, all that kind of old school rhetoric mm-hmm. that that. But, you know, if they like you, it helps. Like they don't have to like you, but it, like it helps. Oh, my God. How do you get them? I think it's going from this whole thing of like, you know, diversity and inclusion, but like this also this sense of belonging. How do you help students belong and feel like they belong? Because what I also found out was like, they'll do great on standardized tests because they they, they want it like, if, 
if they want to, if, if they want to please you, they'll go out and they'll they'll come back and say, Mr. Lee, Mr. Lee, I did great on these tests. I did good on the, and you taught me and everything. You know, and, and sometimes in my mind, I'm like, no, nah, I don't know how you did, but, <laughs> but like it's trick. And like for example, I had this eighth grade student who gave me the greatest compliment of my career. So forget, you know, being teacher of the year and all that. But she walked into my classroom one day and she's, we call it down here. I don't, I don't know. I just keep saying that because I think, I think cultural thing, but she talked about, she sucked her teeth is what we call it. Like she went, you know, she walked in my classroom and said, Mr. Lee, I, I never going to like history, but I love coming to this class. And, you know, at first I was like, just sit down. <laughs> but then I started thinking about, I was like, Oh my God, like that is the greatest compliment in the world for a teacher. Like the, she basically said, I'm not gonna like social studies. I'm never gonna like history. You're never gonna make me like it, but I love coming to this class. And I thought, oh my God, like I can trick her into learning. It is about the relationship and trust that we build with one another, that everything's okay, um, regardless of how I act sometimes as a teacher or she acts. And that's true about being a parent or a boss or or anything else, I think, in, in relational kinds of things. It is so funny because I have a, a chapter in my book uh, mm-hmm. that essentially says all of those things. In, in my book, we just call it pairing. So the um, behavioral literature talks about this quick, get them to like you uh, sort of thing is yeah. a, a behavioral strategy that I talk about a lot called pairing. And we have years and years of research in psychology that says people are more likely to do what you need them to do if they like you. And this isn't yep. about being friends. This I say this all the time. Yes, We're not right. saying become friends with yes. them, that's you right. know, do TikToks with them, although that yes. may oh, be no. appropriate. Yes. <laughs> but it's, it is not about being friends with them, but it is about understanding the psychology of how all humans work. Yep. When I like you, <laughs> I'm more likely to do the things you need me to do. I mean, it's just, it, it really is sort of basic psychological science. Todd Whitaker in his book, What, what Great Teachers Do Different, yep. talked, about, talked about teaching. And he said, this, he said these two words, teaching is all about tone and manner. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh my God, that's right. It's not about content. It's not about knowledge. It's not about all this. It's about tone and manner. And I think that's true for me as a parent. For me, as a, a, a you know, a, a, when I go out into the world, when I go to the grocery store, when I go to the gas, I mean, it's about tone and manner, and just helping people to begin to think about that and how they look and how they appear and how they think, and 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 that whole tone and manner. I think I think it I think really makes a difference. And oh my gosh, yeah, I, I, I debate <laughs> whether I should open this can of worms, but you know, so much of our tone and manner. It's not about the kids. I mean, I just made a Facebook post about this not long ago. That was so much of our reaction to our kids' behavior. It's not about their behavior. It's about how I'm feeling, what kind of mood I'm in, what kind of day I've had. Yes. So, so much of tone and manner is about everything you were saying earlier, right? Like the teacher's inner self and how they're actually doing. And you cannot have tone and manner unless you can figure your own stuff out. Yes. Amen, sister. And it, it comes back to that whole issue of like, then people don't want to include white space to figure out what's going on on the inside, to figure out yeah. how they can have tone and manner. You know, it's like, these are the kinds of like full circle moments that I am always like, okay, so I'm right back here at the beginning. 
yeah. <laughs> of helping teachers know their inner self. But the only way to do that is to have white space or silence or meditation or a spiritual life or re- time for reflection or whatever it is. And so it just feels very cyclical to me. Yeah, I know one thing that um, I've, I've worked with with some schools I'll give you an example. So I can meet with teachers like during their planning period, yep. but they give me a little extra time, you know, so it's, it's no more than an hour usually like right. meeting with little groups all during the day, but giving them an opportunity around some boundaries, they're, you know, always boundary markers, touchstones and those kinds of things, but to give them time to practice that, to, mm-hmm. to step away and say, here's what we're doing. And they think it's weird as hell. I mean, they think it's oh, I just know. I know. odd. Well, here's but after time, over time, yeah. I'll, there'll be some, there'll be a whole lot of them will be coming and saying, oh, I've been waiting for today, you know, and not all of them because we're all in different places along with this. But I think it's also being intentional and giving people a chance to practice it, to, to see that it can, can work for them. I mean, there's so many things I'm like looking at the clock thinking, okay, we really have to wrap things up, but I just want to keep, I just want to keep talking because there's so many things that we've gone from how do we help, you know, people develop their inner self? How do we have white space and silence and equitability? And I mean, we've literally just scratched the surface and there's just so many things, but I I love everything that that we've already shared. And I want you to share with listeners, if they want to learn more about you or any of the work that you do or, or read up on any additional things that you kind of have shared resources, how can people find you Morgan? Yeah, I think um, probably the easiest way is I have a website, www.leadingupllc.com. And if you'll go there, you'll see some of the things that we do. I have a group you know, a group of people that we gather together to do some some work um, in different ways. Because I also believe that like you know, my gifts only go so far, right? So there's certain things that I do well and certain things that my friend Kim or Wanda or my wife Lena does well. Um, and so um, there's some information there. There's a way to contact me. There's my phone number um, and I'll be in an email address and I'd be happy to um, respond in any way that I can um, or give you resources that we can talk and, and that sort of thing. So I'm always excited to learn from other people. I'm a, I'm a learner and, and that's kind of like, you know, what I do. So like even today, I've learned so much from you and I learned so much when we were together online. And it is, it is fascinating that we can learn together this way on Zoom or on podcasts or, you know, just having discussions um, that it makes me think differently. And when I think differently, then, you know, all kind of stuff happens. So I appreciate you. I appreciate being here and, and having, having folks listen (laughs) if they made it this far. (laughs) I love it. It, It's so true. I mean, every episode I, you know, I take notes. I told you at the beginning that I I would be taking notes and I'd be thinking about things because, because I agree, you know, I'm a lifelong learner and it's funny you say that because I, every time I talk about my website, I'm like, well, I, you have this philosophy of making words matter for good, but it's like, you know, we do training and consultation and write a book and podcast. And we're just, right. I think our servant hearts are, are doing our best to just help people in whatever way we can. Yeah. And that's what I also love about you and all the work you do. And, you know, just your approach that of all of the things your relatability, your ability to kind of draw people in and, and help people feel like I'm not crazy for thinking certain things, or I am not alone in feeling like I'm the only person who thinks this way. So 
I, I just love that. And I love that you were able to, to join this morning. And I know that folks have walked away with, with lots of things to ponder. And like I said, there's like a hundred other things that I think you and I could chat about today. And so we're just going to have to, to postpone till the next time. Um, (laughs) Well, I've enjoyed it. Thank you for being here. I know, like I said, our listeners have, have certainly gained such value and folks check out his website. He has lots of resources there. He's a wealth of knowledge. I know that it's always interesting to hear other perspectives and I just love how closely aligned they are with, with all of the other things that, that I also share. So until next time, y'all, we will see you stay safe and stay well. Peace.